0: The Cycling Podcast, powered by Super Sapiens. Energy management for committed athletes and coaches.
1: Hello and joining you on a typically grey and cold Thursday afternoon from Berlin, where yesterday one of the city's major newspapers, the Berliner Zeitung, ran a long editorial maligning, yes maligning the fact that the city is not as dirty as it used to be in the good old days. My name is Daniel Freiber. I've recovered from last week's brief encounter with COVID and I'm the host of this episode of the Cycling Podcast in which, having already asked them to look back at their performances in 2022 a few weeks ago, I'm going to ask two friends of the Cycling Podcast and emissaries in the pro peloton to cast their gaze forward just as they are poised to begin their latest campaign on cycling's front line. Let's meet them, shall we? This sport's answer to Stadler and Waldorf, or perhaps Kermit and Miss Miss Piggy, Um, joining us this week from Villefranche-sur-Mer, where the locals are apparently, he can tell us whether this is true, they're apparently up in arms because the the hit Netflix rom-com series, Emily in Paris, showcases several of the town's most scenic landmarks, while pretending that they're in fact in Saint-Tropez. This impeccably stylish other American Midwest émigré is a former Tour de Suisse stage winner and US road race champion. He rides for AG2R Citroën, and he's about to begin his 11th full season as a professional cyclist. He's competed in pretty much every notable race on the calendar, with the notable exception of the Tour de France. I, like most of our listeners, very much hope we'll see Larry, not Emily, in Paris in July. <laughs> Why not on top, on the top step of the podium? But yeah. as we know, he often passes Tade Pogacar in training. Harry, Harry, <laughs> we haven't. Hey, good to be back. We haven't discussed yeah. you being ashamed is maybe too strong a word, but you were certainly ribbed no, by Tade Pogacar shamed. on yeah, social yeah. media.
2: And then it was funny because the day after, I passed him in training
3: again. Oh really?
1: Oh really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then we laughed. Yeah. Very good, very good. Um, well, he was very good sport about it, wasn't he? Um, he, he sort of, yeah, he is. He, he milked yeah. it on social media as well. Um, well, Larry, how are you generally?
2: Yeah, doing well. Uh, just recovering from our training camp, but getting ready for the first races of the year. So I start in Marciez this weekend. So, um, yeah, about to get started after uh, seven months of no racing. It'll be nice to be back in the peloton.
1: You've assumed your usual podcasting position, um, vaguely, have, yeah, horizontal, on your chaise
2: yeah. Um But, Larry, but I, will ag- I do have to comment on the Emily in Paris thing. Uh, that was season two, not season three. But, you know, so if the locals are only up in arms about it now, uh, they're a bit behind. But, but yeah, I was, uh, you know, it's funny because I had some friends visit this year and I was like, oh, hey, look, this is where Emily in Paris was filmed and blah, blah, blah. But yeah, uh, we're fans, uh, we're fans of it, so...
1: There, there are similar geographical incongruities in um, the White Lotus in Sicily. The geography of the White uh. Lotus doesn't really add up, if anyone's watching that. Um, Larry, and that was big news, by the way, today in matin your local paper, um, the Emily in Paris uh. scandal. Um, anyway, Larry, join us <laughs> next from his Astana Kazakhstan team camp in the Canary Islands, in fact, from Tenerife, he quipped to us earlier in the week that the most daunting aspect of training was not the interval sessions or the lactate testing, which in fact was on his schedule today, but having to compete in the Kazakh National Road Race Championships every day, i.e. a race back up the (laughs) Teide volcano to get the best seat for lunch. He's the namesake of a social media sensation whose jokes about teaching have earned him him 1.3 million followers on TikTok. Did he know that? Who is that guy, by the way? If you're interested... Um I uh, um, have <laughs> more interest to us quiet for the moment. <laughs> more interest to us is the fact that our guest is a former baby Giro d'Italia winner and adult Giro d'Italia stage winner. He's also looking forward to his 11th season in the rarefied air of professional cycling. He's the ibex of Marshall Virginia. He is Joe Dombrowski. Joe, um, the TikTok sensation who has 1.3 million followers and tells jokes about teaching. I don't know. I haven't really done a deep dive on this. You probably know more about uh, it than me. How are you anyway? I've only been mentioned
3: in social media posts being confused with this guy. But theres he's not the only other famous Joe Dombrowski. There's also a professional wrestling commentator named Joe
1: Dombrowski, oh, wow. who I've also frequently confused <laughs> a sort of, with. A sort of poor man's Joe Rogan, perhaps. Exactly. Um, <laughs> Joe, how's it going up there on the tater? How was today's return to base after the lactate testing? Because you... Well, you did that, I guess, down in the valley, did you? And then you had to get back up the Tay which you do every day, which is quite a, a, like, slog. Quite a daunting climb, isn't it?
3: Yeah. Yeah, so um, we did five hours on the bike today. Uh, and in Astana, the lactate testing is pretty much standardized. Like, they do it at every training camp at sea level or when we go to altitude. And they always use the same climbs. Um If anyone ever visits Tenerife to come ride their bike, if you do the climb from San Miguel to Villaflor, you might see some spray paint on the road, and that's where we start the test. And then there's a line 5K later where we stop. Um, So normally they do initially a 1.5K test in like 30-watt steps, and then typically they validate that later in the week with a 5K test also in 30-watt steps, but at a bit lower intensity. Um, So today we did 1.5K. So I think it was something like maybe five steps. Um, And then we motor paced back up to the hotel, uh, or at least halfway there. So yeah, it was pretty pretty solid day of training, actually. Um, I've been here for, I think, five days now. So kind of getting to the point where I feel a little bit more
1: okay like pushing a bit and, and Joe, everyone up there always complains about the boredom, but as I said to you the other day, I'm trying to lean into boredom more in my life. I think we need more boredom all of us um, because it helps creativity How, are you are you embracing the boredom up there? I suppose it's less of a factor now with good internet access and you know various devices that you can that you can spend your day scrolling on.
3: Yeah, um, I actually, to be honest, I would say for about two weeks, I really kind of enjoy it. I, I've always liked coming here. Uh, the first time I came here was in 2016, um, and I've come probably twice per year, typically, almost every year, barring, I think, 2020. It's interesting, you know, it's it's so popular with world tour teams um, to the point that I know all the wait staff in the restaurant. Um, one of the guys, Mario, actually will occasionally come to um, the GRO or the tour and, and, and you know, he'll be at the team bus. And I'd say I've spent so much time here that I feel really pretty comfortable. Like you say, like, okay, after two weeks, the the boredom definitely sets in, but um, there's also something to be said for just having nothing to do. Mm, and, 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 and like, also, it... Pre- The fact that you can't really do anything else, I mean, to provide some context, the hotel is inside a national park at the foot of a volcano, and you're probably close to an hour's drive in any direction to get to any sort of um, town or village. Um, So there's not, yeah, there's not really a whole lot to do, but, um, you know, we have a lot of downtime and, it's nice to read or watch some films or just do stuff that maybe
1: you wouldn't do at home because you just keep yourself preoccupied with other stuff. Any, any talk, any murmurs that there might be a rap in the pipeline this year, Joe?
3: No rap that I know of. Unfortunately, uh, how disappointing! Unfortunately, depending on which side of that coin you're on. Uh, well, I was going
1: to start. I was. Gonna, I'm going to start the news roundup um with a bit of a, a reference to that, an allusion to that. Well, I was going to say, true to Joe's reputation, which is steeped in the heritage of 1990s hip hip hop, the days of Nas versus Jay Z and KRS-One versus MC Shan. We're going to start with some good old beef that's come to light between the members of two teams in the last couple of days. Um, one is manager rider beef and involves that often cantankerous kingpin who goes by the name of Patrick Lefebvre. And he's once star rider, Soudal Quickstep, Julien Alaphilippe. Uh, the other one pits two Groupama FDJ teammates against each other. We'll start with Lefebvre and Alaphilippe and fill you in on what the former said this week about the latter. We know relations have been slightly strained between the two in recent weeks. Now Lefebvre has reiterated to Sportster he did have a meeting with Alaphilippe this winter and did tell the Frenchman he was not happy with his performances. Alaphilippe had previously told L'Equipe that no such conversation took place. In the same interview with sports Lefebvre, commented last, last year he won twice, the previous two seasons, three or four times. That's not what I signed him for. He'd also told La, La Derniere newspaper that Alaphilippe has the salary of a champion. Now he has to prove he is one. What do we think of this, champs? I mean, it's typical La isn't it? I mean, I'll just say that, I mean, obviously, um, that the public nature of it is is pretty unsavoury and unnecessary, but it strikes me as very unfair to, you know, we talked in our last meeting, the three of us, when we last did a podcast, about how much luck is involved in professional cyclists. If he, a constructive criticism might be, for example, and I don't think this is the case, that Ala Philippe had not... Been as fit as he should have been or he had neglected something in his training but that's not what he's talking about here he's talking about results and as we all know Ala Alaphilippe's results have been severely impacted in the last year certainly by illness and injury yeah I mean he had
2: that uh that he was in that huge crash in Liege and he was like really really bad off so I think the fact that he even was able to come back from that was pretty big you know and he won like one of the first races uh in Wallonie when he came back so you know, I mean, I think uh, it's a bit harsh because he missed 80% of the season this year and he missed a huge chunk of the season and he won right on return. So I think already that was pretty pretty big. Again, he wasn't super consistent by the end of the year, but, you know, I don't think that's totally fair to judge him over this one year where he crashed a lot and was sick, so.
3: Well, yeah, it wasn't only the crash in Liège. Like, if I remember he crashed in Liège, he crashed in Strada Bianca, Uh, there was another crash? Was it... I crashed him out in Brabant's Appeal. In the Vuelta? (laughs) Yeah. And I don't think he's... I mean, there are... There does seem to be some riders that really find the crashes, but I wouldn't necessarily say that's him. No. I mean, there is an element of, like, unless you're really, like, I'm just going to sit at the back, at the back back, like last wheel, which is probably the safest place in the bunch. If you're going to fight, and and be you know try to be in the front then
1: like sometimes just people crash in front of you and that's mm. what happens I mean, there's obviously the suspicion here that Lefebvre has his shiny new toy and that new toy is Remco Avonapol. He doesn't need Alaphilippe to the same extent they did need him. I mean, I said in our predictions podcast, Larry, that one of my predictions for 2023 was that one of these guys on the super long contract would break their their agreement with their current team and they would be transferred somewhere in 2023, probably mid-season. Alaphilippe's contract is not that long. It, it, It expires... At the end of 2024, but this is starting to smell like the maybe the start of a parting of ways. I don't know. I don't know. I think um, it one depends in, on how it goes. You know. Yes. We'll see. Yeah.
3: And in general, those long contracts definitely, you know, you open up the possibility of between management and rider. If if things, I mean, typically, not always, but typically. The long contracts are going to quite high value riders. And then when a team's investing that sort of money, when things go awry uh, and they look at how long they're locked into that agreement, I can imagine it being a source of tension.
1: Well, talking of tension, that was one bit of internal strife playing out very publicly. Another one's come to light because the Groupama FTJ rider David Gaudu has been revealing details of his very frosty relationship with the Team Sprinter on his Discord channel, or on a Discord channel. Um, In messages that were subsequently screenshotted and went viral, Gourdu wrote that he hoped Demar, Arnaud Demar, that is the Team Sprinter, wouldn't be picked for the Tour de France. And he also said that at a recent team gathering, Demar even refused to share an elevator with him. Gourdu has since apologised on Twitter... Conceding that his issues with Demar should have remained private. Meanwhile, the two riders' team manager, Marc Madio said that Godou had made an immature mistake. Madio added, they may not be friends, but I'm not asking them to be. They just have to work together. Now, chaps, this shocked me because two cleaner cut fellows than david gordu and Arnold demar i mean Arnold demar looks i mean he's about 31 it looks as though he's, he's yet to be introduced to a razor and um, david gordu okay. looks as though his parents would need to accompany him to a pg at the cinema um i can't believe that they i can't believe that these two aren't getting on um but maybe i'm just you know naive and i don't know enough about the, that team yeah go on joe well,
3: so I only saw this at, at lunch after our ride like an hour ago. Uh, a teammate showed me this headline. But um, they were both here in the hotel. Uh, and Godou is still here and Damar is not. Don't know if that's anything to do with that conflict, but I just ah, thought it was interesting. interesting.
1: Well, maybe David Godou has got too much time on his hands and he's, he's embracing or not embracing the boredom enough and spending too much time on his Discord channel. Um, I mean, uh, it's a didn't. bit
2: strange that he has a Discord channel with a bunch of fans
3: or something of cycling. Like, what is a Discord channel? That, that,
1: uh, <laughs> yeah, I asked this question. Is that's really
2: not just, a story, <laughs> but...
3: You just, it's, like, bitch and moan about something? It, uh, I, it's like a
2: WhatsApp sort of thing. You know, it's like having a WhatsApp group, but then he has it with some fans, I guess, right? It's, yes, like, it's a bit also, of a weird thing to tell a bunch of random people, uh, you know... Like, obviously, that's going to get out into the media, now.
0: <laughs> yeah, uh,
1: uh, as Larry and I were discussing before we started recording, David Godu is also a Twitch sensation, but that's another... We're not going to open that can of worms. We'd we'll spend another half an hour trying to explain <laughs> what Twitch was. Um, a- anyway, chaps, um, enough of the off-the-bike shenanigans. Let's get to some racing. Start with my favourite discipline, cyclocross. It was the much-anticipated Benidorm round of the World Cup of the weekend, as discussed with Rob Hatch and Laura Messager a couple of weeks ago. The crowds were large and passionate as we expected and the racing was exhilarating, particularly the final lap of the men's race where Wout van Aert and Mathieu van der Poel traded blows and the lead several times before van der Poel held off van Aert to win. Dutch flag was also fluttering high above the Costa Blanca after the women's race, no great surprise about the nationality of the winner. But the violence of Femke van Empel's attack certainly stunned her rivals and the course side fans. Van victory over Puck Petersen also gave her an now unassailable lead in the World Cup. Lauren Swake still leads the Men's World Cup by 46 points from Michael van Hornhout. On the road, I'm going to, going to go in ascending order of importance in rounding up last week's results, ending with the most prestigious. Um, at the weekend, the season started in Spain with the Gran, Gran Premi Valencia. Which was won by Arno De Lee of Lotto Destiny, one of a sack full of victories he'll no doubt amass in twenty twenty three. Remaining in Spain, we've also had to start the challenge Mallorca with the Trofeo Calvilla. And that was won on its very first outing in an Intermarche jersey by Rui Costa, ahead of Louis Verveca and Ben Healy. Former teammate of yours, Rui Costa Joe at UAE? Yes, in UAE, definitely. Yeah, surprised to see him they, starting with
3: such a Wanty buy- does seem to get... Well, I, I was just going to say, um, Wanty, I think if you polled... It's, it's interesting to kind of get a sense of what people's perspective on teams are within the bunch. And I think if you polled a lot of riders maybe two or three years ago, if like, hey, would you want... Let's say all things being equal, salary, whatever, would you want to go to Wanty? I think there would be a lot more people that would say they would want to go there now than two or three years ago. Mm. They seem to get a lot of out of the. They seem to get a lot out of their riders. They're good at yeah, upcycling.
1: Definitely. They're good at upcycling, aren't they? Not recycling, but you know, sort of turning riders who were considered past their best into well, sort of restoring them to their former glory. And uh, what is that though?
2: Uh, oh. I mean, I think they, they've invested a lot in like, uh, you know, technology. I think they took this Ike Visbeek his guy from um, Sunweb. DSM, Sunweb or whatever. And I think he's just really like putting in a lot of the things that they did at Sunweb, uh, you know, like, you know, just dialing in the equipment, you know, things like looking into what kind of tire pressure they have to ride, you know, optimizing their nutrition. I think it's just really they've done a lot with all that stuff and then I don't know if they have um, they have some Greek coach who's supposed to be very good. Also,
1: you know, get mixed up with Quick Step. With Suda no, uh, they also nope.
2: have a Greek coach. He actually used to yeah. be a rider. Anyway, apparently he's very good. And uh, you know, I don't know. I think there's a lot of uh, different things going on that, um,
3: yeah, have sort of led to this good uh, cycle. I also spoke with Kalmajan in the airport, and he said that the ambiance in the team was
1: really lovely which lovely but amb- you're going to be definitely worth some bronze can you yeah <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Not enough is made of the the, <laughs> the ambiance that reigns in every team, whether it's lovely or not. Um, chaps, okay. today was round two of the Trofeo or the Mallorca challenge. It was the Trofeo Alcudia and that was won by Marine Vandenberg of EF Education, ahead of Ethan Vernon. Still speaking Spanish. I'm actually missing a Spanish lesson tonight to this podcast. Um, but moving our focus across the Atlantic now to Argentina. At the time of recording, we've had four pretty flat stages of the Vuelta a San Juan. They've been won by Sam Bennett, Fabio Jacobson, Quinn Simmons with a classic coup de finisseur, a late solo attack. And on Wednesday by Fernando Gaviria, to whom I owe an apology after a disparaging remark in the pod a couple of weeks ago about him possibly making a comeback to cycling in 2023. So um, congratulations. Enhorabuena, Fernando. Finally, in last week's episode, we were mid-tour down under. We were feeling the rush. The wheels were in motion, per the official race song, as discussed with Mitch Docker in last week's episode. UAE's Jay Vine had just taken the ochre jersey, but two potentially decisive stages late ahead, including one to Mount Lofty on the final day. Well, I can tell you that the winners of those last two stages were Brian Koka of Cofidis and Simon Yates of Jaker Alula, ahead of Vine thanks to that move with Yates on the final day held on to take the overall victory for his new UAE Team Emirates team. Yates was second overall with Peo Bilbao third. Some notable performances in Australia from Magnus Sheffield who was fourth on GC just 20 years old still and Antonio Tiberi of Trek Trek, Segafredo 21 years of age he is. Um, He was eighth on the GC star of the week nonetheless was without doubt Jay Vine let's conclude this week's news roundup by hearing from him and his partner Bree talking to Matt Keenan after that final stage
3: yeah pretty incredible to be standing here wearing this jersey Like, and the way we drove that was first class like the guys incredible Marco the in the car Always calm, always collected, giving us clear instructions. And then this one behind the scenes, really helping me out, so yeah.
1: Brie, who was more nervous in the last kilometre, you or him? Uh, I have to say 100% me, I think. First uh, stomach was doing a few turns. Jay's mum wasn't much better either. I think her stomach was turning too. So yeah, pretty nervous, but when I saw you following those attacks, I was like, you have this honey, oh, I'm so proud of you. <laughs>
3: Any moments where you had doubt today? Yeah, it was pretty hectic at the start, really trying to let the brake go, let it go, let it go. And then, uh, yeah, we had guys trying to to ride it back, obviously. It was the last chance to do anything. So we really had to be on our toes all day. And, you know, that's why we've got such great people around us. And the, the team is just incredible.
0: The Cycling Podcast, powered by Super Sapiens. Energy management for committed athletes and coaches. And now you can wear the Super Sapiens Energy Band, the first and only wearable that can display real-time glucose data directly from Abbott's LibreSense Glucose Sport biosensor. The Super Sapiens Energy Band is available at supersapiens.com for 159 euros. Hello, this is Lionel here to say a very big thank you to our title sponsors, Super Sapiens fueling is one of the most important things you can do to prepare for a race or an event or any long ride really it's also critical during your effort we all know that horrible feeling of realizing just too late that we've taken on board too little fuel sometimes it's a creeping realization and at other times it seems to come out of nowhere that's the dreaded bonk well all of that can be a thing of the past with super sapiens As we've learned more about nutrition, we now know that fueling is not just about how much we eat, it's about what we eat, when we eat it, and how the body responds to the fuel that we give it. The Super Sapiens data gives you real-time energy levels, so you can see what pushes your glucose levels into the performance zone, where you want to keep it, you can spot anything that causes the spikes and crashes that you want to avoid, and you can tweak your diet to ensure you can perform to your best on race day. To find out more, go to supersapiens.com. Before I hand back to Daniel, I'm currently in Marseille to see our very good friend, François Thomaso, who lives here, of course. He's giving me the full Marseille City Break experience, and it's for a new mini-series for Friends of the Podcast called, I think, La Marseillaise. It's going to tell the story of the city's relationship with cycling and the opening race of the French cycling season, the Grand Prix La Marseillaise, which is on Sunday. Friends of the Podcast subscribers will be able to listen to that when it's finished at some point next week. In the meantime, there's my two-part interview with Doug Ryder, which is on the Friends of the Podcast feed now. Part one was recorded last March, but we didn't get to put it out at the time. And it was me talking to Doug about the rise and eventual demise of his Quebecer team. Well, I brought the story right up to date. I spoke to Doug again a couple of weeks ago about the new Q36.5 pro cycling team that he's been putting together over the past six to nine months or so. He talks about the challenges and opportunities of building a new team and in tandem with the first part about Quebeca it tells uh, the whole story of doug Ryder's time in cycling those two parts are online now along with our archive of more than 80 episodes which are exclusively for friends of the podcast and just a quick reminder we have paused collecting subscription fees until march uh, just to enable us to catch up on releasing some episodes so if you're a 2022 subscriber and you've had any issues accessing the latest episodes do drop us a line contact at com, and we will get you sorted out
4: Eh, son palabras que he escrito con mi puño y letra, palabras que muchos de ustedes van a recordar y que tengo muchos nervios de, de comunicar. ¡Atención Colombia! ¡La última rampita va a ser para Nairo Man! ¡Nairo Man! ¡Nairo no es un ciclista! ¡Es Nairo Man el que no... ¡La victoria de etapa! ¡Ay, Pero no lo puedo creer. Es lo que va a pasar de aquí en adelante con Nairo Quintana. Me considero un luchador que ante todo reconoce en el ciclismo colombiano
1: a hombres. Nairo y... Quintana. Qué bravo, Nairo Quintana, Nairo Quintana. Descende le ande, e aquí diventa ya un grande. Nairo quintana viene a la altura, e para los otros es vida dura. No me rindo
4: y sigo, y sigo hacia adelante. Voy a seguir batallando por competir.
1: I am a fighter. I will not give up and I will fight until my body and spirit resist. I'm also studying to be an accountant. Well, we heard we had we had some of that in that little medley that I prepared there. E- expecting Nairo Quintana to announce his retirement um yesterday on Wednesday in Colombia. We didn't hear the bit about him studying to be an accountant, but he also revealed that at the press conference. So the cream of the of the cycling media, well, some of them journeyed all the way to, to Colombia to hear that, no, he wasn't retiring, but um, yeah, he might become an accountant at some point in the future. But chaps, I did, well, I, I thought that we would end up dedicating a large part of today's episode to this piece of news. Um, what we thought was going to be Nairo Quintana's retirement he it turns out um, is determined to persist to prolong his professional cycling career he doesn't have a team yet Um, he's going to come over to Europe in February in the hope of securing some kind of contract He, he thanked the domestic Colombian teams that have shown an interest in signing him for, the, for their interests. But he said he's, he's looking forward to and he's ready to carry on competing at the top level. Of course, we know that when well, he finished sixth in last year's Tour de France and was then stripped of that sixth place because he tested positive for Tramadol, which is banned by the UCI, but is not on WADA's anti-doping um, list, banned list and well he didn't suffer any ban but there've been all sorts of rumors swirling about teams being discouraged from taking a punt on Night Man and sure enough he has ended up at this stage anyway in late January without a contract so what now for Night Man um i mean the first thing to say chaps about this was that it was a big I mean, it was it was a huge deal in Colombia, obviously, because Quintana, you know, of all the Colombian riders, he does have this this kind of mystical air about him. You know, the story of Nairo Quintana is a fascinating one. It's the kind of story that, um, in professional cycling, we particularly as, as narrators of the sport, we absolutely love, and we 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 soak up we drink up um you know even going back to when he was a few months old this story that i think matt Rendell tells brilliantly in his book colombia es Pasión*, and um, that he almost died at eight years old he was he's sort of tempted by death tempted by this this kind of spirit lingering um and his mum took him to see a dying woman and and this is this is sort of what saved him that she told them, Nidal's mum to use a, a strange blend of nine different herbs and that's what brought him back to life and his whole career has had this kind of mystical air about it that almost as though he's not well he's not just a cyclist he's a he's more of a prophet he's more of a missionary he's more of an ambassador a talisman for the whole nation of Colombia so it was going to be huge news and um, yesterday had he retired however um, that is not going to be the case, Chaps, Your your hot takes, your initial reaction to this when you found out yesterday that he was going to continue in the professional peloton. I mean, I that didn't really that, surprise me. Oh, you you go, Joe. <laughs>
3: well, I I thought that the news was already confirmed that he was retiring, so I was surprised that he said he's continuing. Go ahead, Larry. What did you?
2: Yeah, no, I mean, I I don't know. I just uh, I would have been really surprised if he retired because. Uh, I mean, just looking at how he raced last year, and the fact that he didn't really like give up very quickly on trying to find a team. Like, I feel like he's not going to stop till he tries until he finds a team. And I'm guessing he'll find some sort of team. Uh, what team that would be,
3: or what you know level? Uh, you know, I imagine he'll find something or work something out. I mean, he definitely has a hard mentality. You know, yeah. Like, uh, so I don't see him. I tend to agree with you. I don't see him just sort of giving in so easily, but he says he wants to race at the highest level. And it's like, I mean, just in terms of numbers, like how many world tour teams actually have a spot, even if they were interested, like how many spots are actually available now that we're at the end
1: of January. Mm. I mean, there has been talk of teams being able to shuffle their pack a little bit and maybe send riders down or back to their development teams. And to maybe find a place for Nidal Man. But I mentioned the reaction in Colombia and the sort of anticipation of this announcement. Let's hear, shall we, a bit more about that from a friend and colleague of mine, Juan Carlos Bejarano from Win Sports TV. And well, he certainly followed Nidal Man's press conference in Bogota very closely yesterday. Yeah, we only
4: had one source. That's true. And as a, a colleague, Colombian colleague, um, I think that Nairo did think about retiring. I understand that uh, you know he was he was not happy with the things uh, that, that were happening, and I, and I will assume that he did think about retiring. But obviously, he's also a human being. He's a hero for. Colombia. This is what maybe some people in Europe don't understand. Um, Nairo Quintana is just, it's not a simple cyclist, he's a hero. He's Nairo he's Man. There. He's not a cyclist, he's Nairo man. <laughs> <laughs> Exactly. He is out there in terms of popularity together with players like uh, football players like Falcao and James Rodriguez. And I could say he's, he's even more loved than any other football player. And Uh, any other cyclists, including Egan Bernal. So people loving he's been out uh, cycling this week, training, and he has seen how people loving what he means for the country. And I read um, lots of messages directed to him in Twitter, in Instagram, in Facebook, please don't give up, please don't retire. Uh, And I think he he read that and and probably thought, you know, well, I'm going to continue. So that's what I think could have happened. I can tell you, Daniel, that every single radio and television network stopped during the press conference, just paying attention to whatever he was saying. And a lot of them, I repeat, radio and TV and online, were broadcasting the press conference live. I mean, that is amazing. You, mm. you wouldn't find this with the president of Colombia talk and no one would do that.
1: Mm,
4: mm. Uh, we could say uh, there were packages already prepared. Uh, I think 90% of people of colleagues thought he was going to retire, uh, honestly.
1: Yeah.
4: Um, some people had hope that he wouldn't retire, but we're talking about hope. No one really had the knowledge uh, or the information whether he was going to or, or whether he was going to stay. But I would say it was a surprise, uh, and and I think it was a a beautiful, it was more than, it was a sort of a speech, really. It was beautiful, um, saying, you know, he wants to continue battling, he's a champion,
1: and yeah, I, I think people are happy, really. I mean, it was in the image of Nairo Juan Carlos that we've seen over the last ten years, this almost sort of ambassadorial but almost kind of mystical air that he has. He seems to he exists apart from we all know the the other Colombia writers, or most of them are good friends and they're very you know, they're very active on social media, they're very gregarious. And Nairo has always seemed to exist slightly apart from that, almost on a higher plane. This sort of, as I say, this kind of talismanic ambassadorial plane, and his message was very much in that vein, wasn't it? Oh
4: yeah, I mean, it's it's, it's like a mystical figure. He's a talisman uh, for for all Colombian in any sports. So I think I repeat, I think it was like a speech. He was like a like a semi god. Um uh, forget the word, but that's what it is. A semi god of a sport talking about continuing fighting, obviously trying to bypass that wall that has been put in front of him. And um and I, I think he got a big applause. I mean mm-hmm. you wouldn't see that in a in a press conference usually. And and, and that is also the reason why people are angry uh, with UCI and with some organizers of, of of the big grand tours in the sense that there is information that they had made difficult for Nairo to find a professional team, a world tour team, or a pro team. Apparently, there were conversations with some pro teams, and and those pro teams were advised that you know that if they hired Nairo. Then they wouldn't be invited to, you know, one of the uh, grand tours. I don't know if this is true. Some people say, why would UCI or ASO put on a fight like this against Nairo Quintana? But this is what people think. Mm. This is what people in Colombia think that UCI and ASO have made it impossible for him. And and then remember that what he did was not right. Obviously, he took um, Tramadol. Although he, and, has, he insists that well, he didn't. Yeah, which I think it was a mistake. I mean, he should, I, I think he did take it, honestly. I mean, there were tests there. Uh, it would have been easier to say, you know, I made a mistake, I took Tramadol. Yeah, you can strip me of my sixth place, of my points, whatever, and life would continue. But what what we cannot understand is this is trauma though. this is not doping this is not mm. uh an enhancing maybe seeing product or, or whatever it's it's, it's, it's trauma It's a painkiller doesn't give him an advantage over the other riders and and the fact that he was treated like a villain, that's how they see it, that's how we see yeah. it in Colombia. I mean, I
1: mean, He was like a villain. Yeah. The, the, the logical... If that is true, and we don't know whether it is true that teams have been advised not to take him and organisers have, have been advised not to take him, the logical explanation for that would be that he attacked and his legal team, his lawyers, they attacked the very basis of that rule. That it's only a UCI rule, it's not a wider rule about tramadol, didn't they? And if he had yeah. just accepted the sanction, sucked it up, done the welter, maybe, or even maybe even not done the welter, but not done what he did, attacked the rule and caused the UCI a big headache, then he probably would have found a team. I mean, that's the that's the assumption, isn't it? Oh, yeah. I mean, I agree with you. If
4: NIDA would have asked me, what should I do? I would accept what I just said, you know? Yeah. Just accept, uh, accept the rule, apologize, and life would continue. Uh, but, you know, he thought, no, I'm not going to take this. But uh, my point, and, and and I wrote in Twitter yesterday yesterday, uh, a message that was retweeted. I don't know how many times. I said in the peloton there are riders who were suspended uh, because they took you know enhancing mm. drugs. Uh, they did doping, and they were some of them who retired last season. They were giving a hero's farewell. Yeah, and there are statues of some riders uh, that also did doping. People still. Talk of them highly, uh, some of those people who were caught doping, we see them as colleagues now, and they are respected in all Grand Tours when they go. There are press conferences with them, and this is people who actually did doping. Nairo Quintana, as far as we know, has not done doping and has never been stripped of a, strip uh, a Gram Tour or whatever he has won is. As far as we know, a clean rider. This is Colombian ice.
1: Okay? Yeah, yeah.
4: He was he was treated the way we see it as a sort of Armstrong in South America. I mean, ha- that's where people were angry.
1: Yeah, there have been murmurs, Juan Carlos, about, you know, the the French um, doping raid a couple of years ago. And there is, a, I suppose, yeah. some fans might wonder whether if it's true that the UCI have been encouraging teams not to take him. Is there something still lingering from that? We know there, was, there were no legal consequences. But um, without going into all of that now, um, and regardless, I'll just ask you one last question. What what do you, do you think? What's your best guess? At what will play out for Nairo Quintana over the next two, three, four months? What do you think will happen?
4: I mean, I mean, he said that clearly, um, and he, he got the offer to to work in a Colombian team to third divisions, we can call it. He said no. He wants to he wants to be in a Grand Tour. Uh, he also said he's going to come in February to Europe and he's going to try uh, to find a team. You know, there are teams that maybe could hire him. Astana, for example, why not? And and there are other teams who are, which are powerful at War two level that could hire him. Is this going to happen? I don't know. Also, we don't know about what he's asking in terms of salary, you know, is he going to ask for a huge salary? I don't think he's in a position to no. to to ask, even for for a million uh, euros a year. I don't think he could do that. So he will have to lower his expectations in 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 terms of salary. He's going to have to lower his expectation in in terms of being the couple, the leader of of, of a world tour team or second division pro team. I would love to see him in a grand tour one but i don't know what do you feel would you love to see nairo in the peloton again i feel last year it was amazing what he did
1: realistically i think what will happen is that this will fade from the agenda this this whole issue of the tramadol ban it will i'm not going to say that people will forget about it but it will be overtaken by other events and he will just slip quietly back into a team who needs him in the in the spring. Is my is my guess. You know, whatever pressure is being put on the world tour teams, pro Conti teams now. I think if they tried to sign him in the spring, there will be a lot less pressure because there isn't the whole issue at the that we have towards the end of the yeah. season of who gets a license, who doesn't get a license, who gets invited to whichever race. That's all decided. Yeah. So exactly, I think yeah. it will be easier for him. So, chaps, um, as we heard there, well, in Colombia, people are pretty convinced that there is some kind of vendetta against Quintana. Um, You know, as I explained to, uh, as I sort of suggested to Juan Carlos there, the problem I think, the problem started for Nairo when he, tried to contest this sanction against him. But not only, he didn't only try to argue that it was a false positive. He basically went after the whole basis of the rule and said that the UCI or his lawyers sort of said the UCI had no right to make this, what is effectively a bylaw outside the auspices of the WADA legislation. Um, and, And I think that that probably put people's, people in in high places, backs up. I mean, just on the issue of the the tramadol positive, I mean, you guys uh, have been very aware. I mean, it's a couple of years now that these tramadol tests have have been happening. Um, As far as you're concerned, what you've seen, what you've observed, has it pretty much been purged from the peloton, do you think? I mean, certainly everyone must know that.
2: Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's what I was like. Either this guy is so dumb or it's a mistake you know like mm. i i just i literally i don't understand because like i've been tested for trauma all plenty of times at the races i'm sure joe has too and like you know yeah it's not like what do you think it's like a fake test you know like why why who in their right mind would do that you know like like to me i'm like that's just so stupid so like i'm like either this guy is like so dumb and didn't think the tests were real or something or like uh it maybe or I don't know. I was like, or it could be a mistake because it's just like I just can't understand how someone would like
3: do something that like brash, you know? Um, but yeah. Right. I mean, now in the Grand Tours, if you get tested, I've never gotten post-race tested in the Grand Tours since they instituted the Tramadol test without also doing the Tramadol yeah. test. It's always been yeah. accompanied, so it's like it's not like they're not going to test for it. Um, but yeah. I couldn't really comment on whether
1: it's possible to test positive from it from something else or I mean, you know. I mean, I expected that I I I, I expected that to be part of his defense. I did a bit of reading and a bit of research about that. And there, there have been um there have been studies about how false positives for tramadol can come about, not necessarily with the test method that's being used by the UCI but with other test methods. So I expected to see that when he brought his case to the Court of Arbitration for Sport, but it wasn't there. Uh, Um, And and parallel to this, guys, I mean, in the whole, in Nidor's whole rhetoric, I mean, we heard how kind of defiant, how belligerent he was in his press conference. Um, It was a pretty sort of stirring speech. And then he also released the whole text of the speech in a statement. Um, You know, there is this narrative with the Colombians and, and particularly with him that he is, he has been invested with a higher kind of calling and he is, in the peloton as a kind of ambassador and representing the whole nation of Colombia. I mean, I don't know if you guys are aware of this, but when I'm in mixed zones and it's it's been a theme of the last 10 years, really, that the the very substantial Colombian media presence at races, particularly at races like the Vuelta, there are more Colombian crews than anything else. Um, There is pretty much always, in every interview with any Colombian rider, there's some kind of question which speaks to what this is doing for the nation of Colombia and how proud Colombia is of whichever rider it is. Pretty much every interview and um, finishes with that. But no one embodies that more than uh, Nairo Quintana. And there is this, uh, I, I got the sense from Juan Carlos there, also thinking about what's happening with Superman Lopez. The, there is this sense at the moment that there is maybe, you know, I think conspiracy is maybe too strong a word but the, the Colombians are still the, the little men. I don't mean literally. I mean most of them are. Um, sure. Well, they're climbers and and they're r- r- relatively small of stature. Some of them, but that that they are powerless. And people, I mean, yesterday there was a, an interview with Marcos Maynard, the doctor at the center of the Superman Lopez scandal. And he says, I will put my hand in the fire for Superman Lopez. Um, I gave him, well, he actually said that he gave him a legal drug, Actovigin, but he said he certainly didn't give him anything illegal. Um, but yeah, the, the, there is this, this feeling that I think is growing, is gathering momentum in Colombia that, that they are the victims of, of something sinister. I mean, I I think
3: given the status, of, without speaking to the specifics of any of those cases as to you know whether the riders are guilty or not guilty, um, I think given the status of cycling in Colombia, um, there there may be some sort of level of confirmation bias where uh, people want to believe in their heroes. Maybe when there's an instance of a number of cases in a relatively short time frame, that people feel that there may be, you know, something uh, against them or, or whatever. And like I said, I, I, I don't really know the details, um, about the Quintana or the Lopez case any more than what I've just read in the media. But, you know, you see, as you mentioned, like I've, I've seen at the grand tours, I mean, the, the Colombian fans outside the buses of teams which have Colombian riders—it's—it's it's incredible the turnout, and I think they feel really closely uh, to their riders, and they—they they probably do really embody kind of a, a heroic type figure within that country. So I can see it being difficult for people to accept.
1: Yeah, I think it's, I think it's very traumatic, Joe, because, you know, Colombia or Colombian cycling had one, one golden age in the 1980s with Lucho Herrera, who, well, he had three fantastic years between 1985 and 1987. And then in the 90s and early 2000s was a very fallow period. And, um, and then Nairo particularly, well, he was in the vanguard of this new generation. And they, well, he, the, 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 the glory days, rolled back and, and in between, I think, you know, that fallow period coincided with a lot of strife in Colombia, political strife. I mean, just to I mentioned Matt Rendell in his excellent book, Colombia Passion. I'll just read a little passage from there when he talks again about why these cycling stars are invested with such responsibility and such status in Colombia. He says, unacknowledged by the global sports industry, the sons of the peasantry have found in cycling a refuge from rural decline, a place where they can apply the traditional peasant virtues of patience and persistence, lucid observation, and the stoic forbearance of physical pain. It has allowed them to transition to the heart of global capitalism and unconsiderable livelihoods from the marketing arms of companies looking to sell their goods to national and transa- transnational markets. Some have even turned global sport against the forces of uniformization and used it to strengthen their own local identities. A few even have the President of the Republic on speed dial. And in a country that has seen such sudden disorienting change, their success and status are interwoven with Colombian nation building. So that, I guess, gives some perspective to it. I mean, I don't know if you've got President The President on, of the
3: Republic on
1: speed uh, dial. Yeah, I don't know if either of you have got... We've got Joe Biden on speed dial yeah. chaps or unfortunately, you see not. Yourselves in, a, in a similar vein no. um <laughs> well we'll see we'll see what happens won't we um over the next few weeks there are a couple of places where i can still see nidalman um ending up i could still envisage him maybe doing a grand tour um later in the year i'll just read one last thing again this i sort of prepared this in anticipation that he was going to retire we were going to talk about how in 2023, it was going to be 10 years since that first Tour de France that Nairo Quintana, where he finished second to Chris Froome, and that was really the start of, as I say, the the sort of salad days of this generation of Colombian riders. Um, I'll just read what Carlos Arribas wrote in El País after that 20. 20- 13 Tour de France. He said, until this tour, until Nairo Quintana, the long-range provocateur on the Payer, on the Ventoux, on Alp d'Huez and the Semnoz visited the Champs-Élysées Podium three times on Sunday night, as second on GC, as the best young rider, as the best climber in the tour. The code, the password, the open sesame that unlocked our understanding of this new age in Colombian cycling had six letters: Rizoul. It was in that location, a ski resort 1,844 metres above sea level and nestled in a forest which extends all the way to the colossal Col Var, that over two days in September 2010, Colombia, its cycling, its escarabajos were born again. Over those two afternoons, Naido Quintana, a young lad aged 20 at the time, followed one victory in a road stage with another in a mountain time trial to break the resistance of the American Andro Talansky and wrap up. The Tour de l'Avenir, la the Tour de l'Avenir, la as far as people like Carlos Arribas were concerned at the time, was the the germ of everything and the germ of this fantastic new age for Colombian cycling. Which, well, on it goes because Nairo Quintana has not laid down arms just yet. Okay, boys, well, we've dealt with the week's news. We've dealt with Nairo Quintana and his non-retirement. So finally, we're going to get on to Larry Warbas and Joe Dombrowski. And having discussed your 2022 seasons a few weeks ago, I thought it would be op- opportune and pertinent just a couple of days in Larry's case before you embark on your 2023 seasons to talk about, well, first of all, to talk about what we've learned, what you've learned since we did that podcast a few weeks ago, because we know that you were about to—you were supposed to have your debriefs. Um, you were supposed to get your report cards from your teams for 2023 or 2022, sorry, and also to talk about well, what are the goals for 2023? What are the race programs? How are your team's looking? How's your form at the moment? How the camps gone so far? But. Maybe a good place to start would be to talk about those performance reviews, the official performance reviews from your teams. Um, Did they happen, chaps? Larry, I'll start with you. Yeah, I mean, so we had one uh, in October when we did our sort of end of
2: season slash pre-season 2023 camp. And uh, we did, you know, all this like physiological testing, blah, blah, blah. And then we had our performance reviews. And I mean mine was pretty simple since uh you know i didn't really race very much last year it was just like a lot
1: of crashes didn't you yeah
2: you know it was kind of like okay you crashed uh that's not ideal (laughs) you were good when you were racing you started strong so start the season strong again and uh you know keep doing a good job as a helper and you know yeah Mm -hmm. and uh i mean they did say like you know they're like okay you're really good at preparing for races um so you know let's just you know make sure the preparation goes into like the right objectives and stuff like that so um so yeah i mean i think it would have been fine last year if i didn't crash but yeah, yeah that is what it is so
1: maybe this is a question for both you joe i'll ask you in a minute but um at the risk of of, of being blunt how much i think you're both in the same mm, position same situation as far as contracts are concerned i think you're both in your last year how much does that loom large and how much is that sort of explicitly discussed or or even alluded to Uh, you need to do this in order and then when it gets to may gets to june we will offer you another contract
2: it's probably different in every team but it's quite spoken about in our team so uh yeah they look we already discussed like uh you know, what they're looking for for this year and, you know, what it'll look like for me for the next couple of years and stuff should everything go
3: well, so. That's interesting. Joe? Uh, In our team, no, I wouldn't say that it's something that um, was really spoken about in terms of, I mean, they talk about, like, what they hope you will achieve in the next year, but I wouldn't say anything contract-related was spoken about. Um, that said, Vinokurov, who obviously is the, the guy in terms of um, dealing with contracts and negotiating contracts was not um, at my performance review. Well, to be honest, I didn't really have a performance review. It was more of like a, we just had a um, race calendar meeting basically on what my races are for more or less the first half of the season and I was a little bit surprised we didn't speak about last season. Um, I spoke to some other riders in the team and they said that they spoke a little bit about how last season went. Um, I think kind of globally speaking, it's not really a secret that 2022 was not what Stana probably would have liked. So maybe it was a case of like, they didn't want to dwell on it. I don't know. Um, but it's also been different in different teams you know some some teams i've been in they're quite um yeah like you sit down and kind of go through the last season and talk about how it went and then other teams kind of hand you your race program for next year and 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 that's it um in terms of yeah contract stuff i i was a little bit surprised what larry said because i don't know if i've really ever spoken about spoken with a team in terms of like we need to see you do this if you want to stay here or mm. you know if that's that type of conversation
1: and just generally guys as i say on the brink of or well, another new season i mean what is your mood typically like at this time of year particularly larry as i say you're only a few days away from your season's debut um does it is it heavily dependent on how well the winter has gone and how well you've trained or is that more or less the same most years or similar most years and any anxiety just comes from i don't know i mean it's been a constant theme over the last few years that the peloton has just been getting quicker and quicker is there a certain amount of trepidation that it will take us another step up this year and and there'll there'll be a lot of of suffering
2: yeah i mean i think there's a there's a lot of different feelings you know i mean okay so every year you're training slightly different you know um i mean you do generally the same kind of stuff so um you you know you know your numbers you know like you know where your values are then you go to training camp you're out with everyone else so you kind of get a gist of like how good a forum you're in you know um but there's always this sort of apprehension when you haven't raced for a long time like will i be good you know because like it's, it's totally different being in the Peloton, being in a race versus being in training. You know, it's like, you can have the best numbers in the world, but sometimes it doesn't work out in training. And then on the contrary, maybe you don't have the best numbers, but it can be great in the race. So um, it's definitely something. It's kind of like, you're almost like, will I still remember how to race my bike? You know, like, like, will I get dropped after 10K, you know? Or like, will I be smashing it? You know, so um, usually you get to the race and you get about like, 10k in and you're like okay like this is fine you know like i'm not shit uh but like it's uh it's definitely like every year to me the worst though was the covid year because like we had such a long break and then like you know everyone was training totally different because like Mm. you know some guys couldn't ride outside so they were only on zwift then there was like you know other guys you know riding hours and hours and hours because they didn't have anything to do and then you're like oh my god like Will I still be able to ride my I was more nervous then than any time. So the normal season, you're a little bit nervous, but like it should be fine. And then, uh, yeah, but for the moment, I feel good. I'm excited for the races. Uh, You know, I think I'm in good shape and yeah, I, I think it'll be good. I'm looking
1: forward to it. And I've seen well certainly the first three races on your programme, Larry, uh, La Marseillaise, Étoile de Bessège and the Tour des Alpes Maritimes, I think for the first three races. Uh, so how does it the third one, but yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. (laughs) So how does it work on your team? We we had Rolf Aldag on the podcast um, the other week who talked about the kind of dialogue that goes on between, you know, the riders come up with an ideal program and then it goes to the directors and the directors will take a certain amount of it on board um, and then they'll give their own suggestions back. And it sounds like it's it's supposed to be a sort of compromise. How does it work on your team?
2: I mean, I think on most teams, it's supposed to be a compromise, but I would say on most teams, I don't think you really, I think they'd say like, hey, give us your ideal program. So then, you know, they can just be like, well, okay, they can see what you're interested in, but in the end they're gonna give you whatever they want to give you anyway, you know? So uh I don't know. I mean, there can be a little bit of back and forth, but I think for the most part, like the team has an idea of what you're good at, what races you should do, you know, where you'll fit best. And like, I don't really think you get a whole lot of say in that. Maybe on some teams you do, but uh from my experience it's kinda like yeah, maybe you can choose between like Toreno and Peronese or something, but it's not mm. like, uh, you know, you can switch a whole lot in the calendar. So most years it's pretty similar. And how did you feel about yours when you saw yours? I was like reasonably happy. I mean, there's always a few ones that you're like, I don't really want to do that. And then there's some you're pumped about. Um, what what but... might
1: be an example of what what might cause you not to want to do a particular race? What sort of factors? Uh, like, Pay
2: might... hey, Vasco is just like the hardest race ever (laughs) and like always shit weather and then like i have bad allergies at that time so it's just like this terrible combo of things Mm. and so it's like that is you know not for me it has not been a pleasant race but i also have this like desire to like one day go there and do well because like i've never done well there so uh just to prove to myself that it's possible um but yeah for example that was one that like i'm like that's not awesome um But then, you know, for the most part, I like most of the races on my program. It's just like, uh, and there are positives to pay Vasco Vasco also. But, you know, I don't know. If I got put in some, like, small backwoods French Cup race that, like, is just a bunch of attacking and, like, not very pleasant to be at, uh, that's something that I would be like, okay, not happy about. But I'm not doing uh, one of those, so that's okay.
1: From the point of view of the sort of flouncing, flaneering, gastro-tourist, I think you've both done pretty well. I said this to Joe the other week. I looked at his program and thought, I'd love to go on holiday to some of those places or (laughs) spend the spring jaunting around. The Ruta del Sol is your first race, Joe. Then you've got El Gran Camino in um, Galicia. Then you've got Catalunya, Tour des Alpes, then the Giro. Um, But, Joe, before you talk about that specifically, Larry said there that he's well there's a certain degree of apprehension how do you feel typically at this time of year I would probably echo what Larry said I I do tend to
3: agree um there is always a bit of unknown in the first race and I don't know that you would think that there's a really strong correlation between like I went out and did you know my best 20 minute power and I'm going to fly in the race um before your first race and It doesn't always work like that. And I think in part just because there's sort of, I mean, form is such a kind of nebulous term, but uh, I, I think there's a lot of things that go into that. So I would say there's always like a little bit of kind of butterflies or nervousness before the first race. Also, not only in terms of how's your condition, but when you haven't ridden in a peloton in Like in my case, Mm. you know, I did Giro and tour and then my season, I was quite light at the end of last year. So I haven't really raced since September. Um, And when you, you, it's interesting, like as you race more, you get desensitized to kind of the danger of the bunch. Um, And probably Mm. the time it's most noticeable to me is in a Grand Tour where you have three weeks straight of racing and where normally you might flinch a bit when somebody crashes next to you. It's like by week three, it's kind of like, oh, okay, well, it wasn't me. It's fine. Mm. And there's also, I think, a little bit of that, like just getting kind of over the maybe nervousness in the bunch. And I would say that the nervousness in the bunch is also elevated maybe because everyone's feeling the same thing or maybe because it's February and everyone's extra motivated compared to, say, October, Um, and there's a little more risk-taking, but I I feel that the tension in the bunch is a little bit
1: higher in the early spring races. Do you Are there particular measures that you take or a method that you use to mitigate some of that risk? When you know that um, maybe your skills aren't as finely tuned as they are at other times in the year, is there an area of the peloton you try to ride in or that you try to avoid or anything that you try to keep in mind? I mean, I
3: don't know if there's really anywhere safe in the bunch. If I I had to (laughs) guess, I think probably either in the front or the back Mm. is the best place to be. But unfortunately, the race doesn't happen from the back, so it's better to be in the front. But, you know, as we were saying earlier, there's also just an element of, of luck. Like sometimes, you know, you're in the wrong place at the wrong time and it's not always something that you can control either.
1: Joe you've had well I think well this is your second team camp and as we know as has been well documented now um, your team has undergone quite a shift in the last few weeks purely by virtue of the fact that they've signed Mark Cavendish and this is kind of a big pivot for Astana who have never had a big sprinter before I mean you and I've been speaking about it over the last few weeks about how this has sort of played out just tell us What you can about how you found out that this was happening because it all seemed from the outside, it might have seemed a little bit cloak and dagger. There were pictures that went viral, you know, sort of paparazzi shots of Cavendish arriving at Alicante Airport and in non team kit, but getting into a team car, riding the team bike, being snapped on the team bike on a road, you know, somewhere near Calpe. And what, what, tell tell us a bit about your experience of what happened. So, um, what I had heard
3: in terms of the, you know, there was, there was a considerable delay in the time that his signing was announced from when it seemed pretty sure that he was coming to the team and I don't know at what point a contract was actually signed um, but what I heard was actually <laughs> it was down to making a British National Championship jersey because, you know, none of that was in the plans and obviously when you take photos and do any sort of promotional stuff that has to be ready um so that takes some time uh i had heard some rumors that he might come to the team at the december camp um and with the whole lopez uh case and him being dismissed from the team uh it seemed plausible that there would be not only the space but also i would think the budget to sign a notable rider and um, it was unique scenario on the market that um, there were two of two really big name riders being Quintana and Cavendish mm. uh, available at so late in the year. Um, so I sort of had this suspicion that um, either of those could have happened. I saw in the media that the team was not interested in Quintana it's it's funny because Astana, really since the team was created, I don't think they've ever had, they've had sprinters, but they've never had, you know, a real world-class sprinter. Um, and there's never really been a team built around sprinting. I think you, you told me some statistic about the number of Astana wins in history that are solo and how it's disproportionately, mm. you know, solo yeah, wins because it's always been kind of a... On, yeah. Yeah, it's always been kind of a grand tour team, a, a team of climbers. So it is a bit of a pivot. Um, and it's not, I wouldn't say only Mark. I mean, also, I've been watching uh, San Juan and, you know, they signed Siritsa last year, um, who also looks quite promising in the sprints. Um, so it'll be interesting, you know, uh, I think that there's a lot of, Riders in the team out of contract in 2023, if that is potentially an evolution in that direction, or if they kind of continue in the classic Astana GC focused,
1: Grand Tour focused sort of way. Joe, obviously, a lot of people online have got opinions about this, so people online have got opinions about everything. But um, what is the thing that you've read and you've seen that you can debunk as someone who knows Astana? You've probably seen these sort of generalisations or these assumptions about what Astana is and the reasons why it won't suit Mark Cavendish. Um, is there something that you've come across um, on, uh, and, and thought to yourself, well, actually... That's going to be fine. That will work. People shouldn't be concerned about that. I mean, I don't really see any issue with Mark
3: here. Um, like, for example, culturally, uh, I don't know. I might have even been a that said this in a in an interview recently. I read that someone had sort of said, like, the team isn't friendly. And he, you know, sort of said, like, we're serious, but we're friendly. Um, and I, I think culturally, uh, it's an interesting mix of kind of Kazakh um, and Italian dominated culture. Um, I think really the big point bringing a sprinter into the team is building out a team around the lead out. And had this transfer taken place in July, perhaps there would have been more room to... Um, you know, kind of think about that strategically. Uh, he was, you know, they brought obviously Cav into the team and Chase Bowl, and I believe they wanted to also bring uh, Richese, but there is not space. Um, so, to be honest, of all the kind of hot takes, I think the only one that is really of any importance or or valid is, um, can you really dial in a lead out, you know, get him where he needs to be at 200 meters to go in, you know, the biggest races? And that's something that, you know, remains to be seen. I hope so. I mean, yeah, I think it would be cool to see him win a 35th de France stage.
1: Well, I think most of us would agree with that. But just to conclude this part chaps about 2023 we did talk we touched briefly um in the last podcast we did about maybe resolutions things you were trying to change things you were going to really focus on in 2023 joe you mentioned the fact that you were going to try and hit the ground running a little bit more get some results early in the season um but anything else chaps has anything been sort of added to the that list of resolutions, anything you've been really focusing on, thinking about a lot in these first few weeks or preceding the 2023 season? Larry? I definitely
2: think I'd like to get off to a good start as well. Um, You know, because I just think, like, that keeps you... It starts, yeah, it gets the momentum going, like, uh, and it starts going in, like, a good way right from the gun because, like, if you get on the back foot, it's really hard to catch up, uh, you know, especially when you have, like, a really pro like a program that's just chock full of races and uh super busy it's it's hard if you start off on the wrong foot it's really hard to catch back up uh until like halfway through the year you know so um for me it's really to have a really good start and uh yeah hopefully
3: it just gets better from there and also like to add to what Larry was saying i think there's a lot to be said for the momentum of starting the season well but you know cycling in some ways you need a short memory, but also I feel like everyone kind of has a short memory and your sort of position in the team and how they use you within races and maybe how they change your race program, you know, what races you get added to or taken out of definitely kind of can rely heavily or weigh heavily or be based on um, how you go early on. And it's kind of like if you start well, you get into the races you want to do, um, mm. you know, and, and the team sort of uses you strategically within the team at a race in a way that you probably are going to be happier with than if you start mm. poorly. Um, because if you start poorly, it, it can easily kind of turn into this thing of like, well, this was your race program, but now it's not.
1: And you're getting sent to stuff that you didn't want it to can, do. And then it's it also... It can all turn a bit, Patrick... It can all sound a bit Patrick Lefebvre pretty quickly. (laughs) Yes, exactly.
4: The Cycling Podcast is supported by Science in Sport. Science in Sport. Fueled by science.
0: Thank you very much to Science in Sport for supporting the Cycling Podcast. I'm reliably informed that Science in Sport have a limited edition run of the Vanilla Gels back on scienceinsport.com. Now, they were very popular, but have not been available for a little while, and Science in Sport are bringing them back for a short period. They don't say exactly for how long. They don't say how many are available. They're limited edition on a first-come, first-served basis. So if the Vanilla Gels were your thing, be quick, and hopefully you can get them before they go out of stock on scienceinsport.com. Do let us know if there are any flavors um, that you particularly like uh, or you would like Science Sport to bring back or innovate. They don't reply to my email about uh, the Castellet gel anymore. Um, As I'm in Marseille, how about a Bouillabaisse flavored gel? Would that work? Or maybe Pastis. Pastis would work, wouldn't it? A nice mild aniseedy flavor. I might suggest that one. Um, While I'm here in Marseille, I'm going to go for a run around the old port, and as we're staying in an Airbnb, there's nothing to eat in the cupboard, so I haven't had any breakfast, so uh, before I go, I'm going to have a Science in Sport gel, just to keep that uh, feeling of emptiness at bay, and hopefully give me a little burst of energy as I start to flag towards the end of my run, but uh, whether you are uh, making short, intense efforts, or riding for a long time, Science in Sport have something for your ride, Go to scientistsport.com to see the whole range.
1: Okay, Chas, well, we're going to conclude this episode. We're talking a little bit more about what you want to achieve in 2023 in a slightly more abstract way. I mean, we've been discussing, um, us three, and, and i sort of put it to you guys that basically your job is to be fit and to get fit. And um, as we've talked about before results can depend a lot on luck but you have to be fit at the races but you know there are a lot of different ways to skin that particular cat um we had Tobias Foster, the world time trial champion on here a few weeks ago and he said precisely that there are a lot of ways to get fit and to get into good condition and another thing we the three of us have also done in the last few weeks we also we all listened to a podcast featuring another Norwegian uh, his name is Olav Alexander Boo. And I've mentioned him on the podcast um, before in the last few weeks. He's the guy behind these phenomenal, these two phenomenal triathletes and Christian Blumenfeld and um, Olaf. Oh, sorry. What's Olaf Eden. Gustav Eden. Gustav Eden. Sorry. Gustav Eden, who are really, well, they've sort of set the heather on fire in triathlon. And Olaf Alexander Boo has been credited with introducing a lot of interesting and novel, training methods and um, he's not a physiologist he comes from an engineering background and we all listen to this podcast long interview um on the rich roll podcast with Olaf Al- alexander boo some interesting concepts there i thought um a couple of some memorable lines or notable lines and um, he said in there there are more there are probably more things we don't know about physiology than things we know Uh, Most often you find that excellent coaches don't have a physiology degree because they have to understand the practical demands, whereas a physiologist might focus on an isolated part of the body rather than seeing performance holistically. Um, It got me thinking, chaps, about this issue of getting into condition, obviously getting into form, which is your, you know, that's the, that is the task that lies ahead of you at the moment. And, And how much Creativity is involved in that because it strikes me that it can be a very creative thing. There are lots of things you can vary. Um, I'm curious to know how creative you think it is, how much autonomy there is, whether it's a very pres- prescriptive thing in your teams and um, that they dictate to you and you basically do what you're told, um, and also how much it's varied in your career how different is what you're doing now from what you were doing 10 years ago and and how different is what you're doing compared to someone who has well quite a distinct and um and 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 sort of singular and, and different thought process about about training so let's talk a little bit about that larry how creative is the process for you of getting into form getting where you need to be before the season yeah, I think for system.
2: me, it's potentially a little more creative than uh, some other riders because, like, I'm really interested in this kind of stuff. So I'm always reading about training, you know, listening to these podcasts with all of Alexander Boo, like, the things like that. And, you know, I'm trying to, like, you know, just absorb as much information as I can. And um, so for me, it's usually like a discussion with my coach. Um, we speak together and I say, like, okay, you know, I think I need a little bit of this. Oh, have you seen this, you know study or whatever you know like i'm really like looking into all this kind of stuff and uh yeah then we kind of like work on the training a bit together like i say i think i need this and then he kind of organizes it in a way that's good so um you know i'll say oh i think these intervals they work really well for me you know i've seen good results from these before so you know we put these in here and there and then you know maybe i need a bit more volume let's put that in here and Um, so it's always kind of like refining and adjusting um but i know there's a lot of guys you know everyone does it differently you know there's a lot of guys who like they just really don't care and they just do exactly what's on the program they don't ask any questions they don't write any
1: comments they don't care about how it makes them feel they just do it you know how how many riders are like that in any given team would you say i mean it's probably half and
2: half i'd say okay like uh there's really a big mix of both you know um But I would say, like, almost everyone has a trainer now. You know, I don't think there's many guys who just kind of do it by themselves anymore. And But I would say there's this gigantic range of how people train. And I would say that even I have trained, like, a million different ways. But in the end, you almost always end up near the same. Like, you know, I could do a million different fashions of training. But my threshold, if we test it, would always be around the same, um, which is kind of crazy. So... You know, I've because, had probably,
1: yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, I was just about to say, that you talk about that delta. I mean, even in sort of amateur endurance sport, you know, you will get, you'll get disciples of, uh, of for example zone two training very low intensity training who swear by doing only that and then you'll get disciples of micro intervals who believe that 10 second efforts or 15 second efforts or 30 second efforts are all you need to do and often as you say the results are quite simple i'm just i'm curious as to whether in the peloton you've ever seen or you see such extremes i mean is, is there anyone doing anything that's wildly at one extreme or the other extreme do you think
2: I mean, I think like Joe can probably speak more to this, but I know on like UAE, they have a coach that Joe had that was like really big into super low volume and super high intensity, but like, I mean, absolutely full gas. And then there are guys that train like, you know, a bazillion hours and not a whole ton of intensity. So there really are like both extremes and both can work well. So, you know, I think it just, and it can even be in the same team, you know, there's a coach that has Mm -hmm. one method and then, you know, not the other. So um, there really is a huge range in the Peloton. But I would say for the most part, like most similar types of
3: riders train relatively the same. Mm. What do you think, Joe? Yeah, I, I mean, I guess to touch on your first question, um, in terms of working closely with the coach versus it being more of an open dialogue, what I've seen having been in a number of different teams is I tend to... because. You know, the, the minutiae kind of, of of training aside, there is an element of like, when you come into a new team, um, nowadays, any World Tour team has a, a a coaching structure. I would say there is some risk if you come into a team and they kind of have their way of doing things and you're like, well, I don't want to do that. Or this doesn't work for me. Or, uh, you know, I want to use my own coach or you know, and, and all these
1: butts. For, for for political reasons.
3: Yes, and it's kind of one of those things like if you go, if you're like, I want to have my own coach, and you put it in the contract, because actually nowadays I would say if you want to have your own coach, it probably needs to be written in the contract. And you know, part of that is because there needs to be this kind of visible dialogue between coaches and riders per the UCI regulations. If you do that and then you go really poorly it's probably not going to be looked well upon and not that it will be looked well upon if you go poorly and you follow everything the team says, but they may be more forgiving or more willing to kind of mm. speak about it. So I would say that in the teams I've been in, probably, and, and maybe this is a fault, but Over time, I've kind of learned that it can be good to just kind of go with what they say initially, and then if things are not working, then to kind of discuss it. Because as Larry said, you can do a lot of different things um, that probably get you to the same point. Um, Mm. And I would say over kind of 10 years racing in the world tour, there's things that I've definitely discovered that, that I think work for me. And I think there are things that work I think that different riders probably need different types of training and different stimulus to be at their best. And there's probably some things that I've discovered that work for, as an example, Larry and I were discussing or have discussed, we train together frequently in Nice. um, Mm. And I feel a really big benefit from weightlifting and continuing weightlifting throughout the season. And Larry does not feel that way. And I, I, to me, like, I think we're just like, kind of on, on opposite ends in terms of how we feel about that. But it's not that, I guess, maybe that's an instance of where, like, something that I feel is really beneficial to me and is beneficial to me maybe doesn't work for everyone.
1: Mm. I mean, what, what are some of the examples, maybe you've each got an example of something you've tried in the past and maybe staked quite a lot on a new idea or a new methodology that definitively hasn't worked and it's sort of blown up in your face have you got any examples of that larry
2: i mean i think you know like there was a period where everyone was getting super heavy into low carb training and that's exactly I what i was, was gonna say yeah mm-hmm. quite heavy into the low carb stuff and like i mean you know so what I would that, can you just, notice- just
1: just walk us through the we'll spell that out what would that mean
2: uh wow well, i mean there's very because like i don't necessarily think that all low carb doesn't work now but like um you know doing way too much so for example you know you'd wake up and you'd have just an omelet and vegetables for breakfast and then like you know you'd ride and you wouldn't pretty much eat hardly anything on the bike mm. or like no carbs or maybe a tiny bit but like only when you really needed it i mean it and, sounds uh, risky <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it's a good way to like really mess yourself up if you don't do it right. And, uh, you know, so I just did really like a lot, a lot of this. And like, I think every once in a while doing a little bit of low carb, but low carb doesn't mean no carb. And I think that's something we definitely misinterpreted um, back in the day, back in the day, not that long ago, but you know, some years ago, uh, you know, it's like you'd go out without breakfast, just a thing of protein in your bottles. And like, you know, I think a lot of riders like from our generation, really did a lot of damage to themselves um, some years by doing this kind of stupid shit. Uh, And, you know, now I'm still, you know, I think the occasional low-carb ride, but that could mean, you know, like you have a low-carb breakfast, so maybe, you know, an omelet and veggies, but then like you still eat a little bit on the bike, you know, like 30-40 grams of carbs an hour rather than like just having like nothing and waiting till like you know Mm. three hours in to eat your first piece of thing and then
1: you come home and you're totally ravenous and like you know i think um and this is more this is to train different energy systems rather than to lose weight am i right yes
2: yeah i mean some people thought it was the best
1: way to lose weight for the while but like i definitely
2: don't lose weight when i do low carb because it's so strenuous on my body and then like yeah you're just like it's like you're too hungry when you come home. And it, yeah. yeah. So for me, I, I really need to do a lot of high carb training. And then, I mean, every once in a while you can do something lower carb. But uh, yeah, I would say like 85% of my training is like very high carb
1: now. Mm. So that was one big example, mm. I guess. With what? I mean, what kind of drop off in what were the, the, how did the results, the poor results of that manifest themselves? I mean, were you literally struggling to finish races or what? How uh, bad did I mean, it get? A f-
2: well, one time I did something really dumb. Like, I thought I could like <laughs> go like uh ketogenic for like a week, you know? I was like, I'm going to do the keto diet for like, you know, a week to like lose weight because I-, I had read somewhere that like if people are on the ketogenic diet, like they produce their own uh like I don't know what is it? Like anti-inflammatory something, you know? So I was mm-hmm. like, "Oh, wow. I bet that's good for recovery." So like, if I just like can be ketogenic i'll lose weight and i'll recover better you know but i was like i'm gonna do this like the week between Catalonia and pay vasco and i was like good in Catalonia, and so i just didn't eat i think a single carb the entire week and uh i didn't really lose that much weight and i felt like shit and then i got to, uh, then i got to pay vasco and i was okay for like one day and then i just absolutely like totally fell apart and yeah i didn't end up finishing the race i mean it was snowing the last day and stuff so it was a bit of a combination of things but yeah that was not that was a failed experiment of mine so that was in like 2016 but
1: but yeah well, he's, would... he's a fascinating sorry go gone, on joe go, on, Jay, go on.
3: no i i would sort of echo larry's statement and that i think the kind of low carb stuff is probably um Jonathan Vauders once told me it's like putting salt on food a little bit can make things better, but too much. And it's not edible, which I think is probably about right. Mm, Um, mm. (laughs) But no, it's, I think it's something that like probably has some value sometimes, but it's a risk. I think it probably too, I think, you know, going back to kind of the, do you follow what what everything the coaches say and do it sort of mindlessly, or do you kind of have a dialogue? I do think that sometimes, um, we as riders can be our own worst enemy when we try to overthink things. Um, because a lot of the kind of tenants, good performance are really pretty simple. And there's probably an element of where riders want to get that, that 1% and you kind of go down a rabbit hole and it's easy to get excited about the 1%. And if whereas like maybe the the viewpoint of a coach um, who is kind of dissociated from that can kind of take a more 30,000 foot view. And mm-hmm. um just be a little bit more yeah it, it it would be interesting it's like you know they talk about people who are sort of like let's say for example like in investing like retail traders who are like constantly trading tend to underperform those who just sort of do nothing and buy and hold an index fund it's like it would be interesting mm. if you could have that sort of data in even like the world tour population like how do you guys perform those that kind of mindlessly do whatever the coaches tell them in their respective teams versus those that are a lot more kind of um active uh and i think it's important to to be thoughtful about it and to want to learn more and you know to being thoughtful in the sense that like taking note of things that have worked well and have not worked well such that you can kind of do the right things going forward. But I would say it's also a balance in that sometimes having someone that's not you making the calls on what you should do can, can also have a lot of value so that we don't kind of maybe chase things that the marginal gain is probably pretty small, but there may be a unforeseen
1: risk. mm yeah I mean it, it's a fascinating topic and it's fascinating you know what I said the the quote there from um, Alexander or well, Olaf Alexander Alexander boo that you know more is not known about physiology than what is known and you know we think of sort of science as being something that's constraining but the, it strikes me that the as the str- science evolves as far as human performance is concerned then it, it opens up even more scope for play and sort of a kind of plasticity and treating the the human body as a, a blank canvas that you guys well you you have the obligation but also the sort of liberty to kind of play with and experiment with I mean obviously the subtext in professional cycling the history of professional cycling is that one of the means of play and creativity, unfortunately, for a number, an era, certainly in the sports history, was doping in the 90s. That was, I think, the big, the big instrument that was used to manipulate things. But it's still, you know, guys, it still fascinates me and kind of beguiles me the fact that that at least, and this is because the margins are so small, but people can still get the timing of things so wrong, you know, particularly as far as major tours are concerned. You do have exceptions, people like Primoz Roglic, who always seem to just flatline his form, just seems to be the same pretty much all the time. But other than with other guys, we still still see them getting their form peaks drastically wrong, or it it looks that way anyway, just being completely out of form um, when the the objectives of their teams and their own objectives dictate that, you know, they should be in their best condition. Um, that still well, happens, doesn't it? I have a question. I think Larry and I are probably on opposing sides of this debate.
3: So we were talking about training and, you know, Larry said sort of like, I could do all these different things, but if we tested my threshold, it probably cam- comes out to about the same. Do you think... Because observationally, I feel that I see this. Do you think that there is something to be said for like times... In terms of keeping a really high level all year, do you think that um, there's something to be said for just times seasonally when you are good and less good? Because I see some riders that are always good at the same times. And okay, there's also for example, you're kind of, um, maybe Roguelich is an example, or Von Aert or Pogachar, but it's also like, is it also possible that they are just better than us? And even Pogachar at 80% is still better than me.
2: I mean, that's possible, but I definitely think like, uh, yeah, we wouldn't see these guys being so good. And, you know, it's like, they're still doing like huge numbers the whole year, you know, like, uh, you know, I think they're still doing like, a lot of times close to their best numbers, like many times throughout the year. So to me, I think it's like, yeah, I I don't think the seasonal thing. I think that's like a mental thing that a lot of guys get in their head, unless aside from allergies, like if someone has really bad allergies, I definitely think like, yeah, maybe there's a, what about heat and cold? Okay. But I'm pretty sure you can adapt to both if you train, if you train for them. So, uh, yeah. I mean, if you just straight out of the gun, you, you don't, train anyone for heat there's going to be some guys who are better in heat than others but i think if everyone trains really well for the heat anyone can perform in the heat and i think it's probably similar for the cold also cold is more well, about to me, like clothing to me, the cold is you just it's about good clothing yeah yeah yeah.
3: yeah yeah cold is yeah and you can definitely learn how to manage the cold better heat i think you can get better racing in the heat but i think there are some guys that suffer more than others in the heat. for sure and i but, think it, there may be an for example, Kristoff, he's always good when it's cold. But do you think he's always good when it's cold because he lives in Norway and trains it shitty cold weather all the time? I mean, I think actually
2: using this all of Alexander Boo is like a good example is that's like one of the big things he talks about is just like you need to prepare for the conditions that you race in. So if they're going to mm. do something cold, they're going to prepare for the cold. If they're going to race in the heat, which is the majority of the race that they're doing, is like they prepare like crazy for the heat. So you take a guy like Christian Blumenfeld, who's big, who's solid, like, you know, not a small guy. Normally you'd look at him, you'd say like, this guy could never be good in the heat, but he crushes everyone else Mm -hmm. in the heat because he's the best prepared for it. And I I really just think it's like about being well-prepared and not about just like, you know, yeah, sure. Maybe some people can be naturally, you know, better in the heat than others, but uh, I'm pretty sure anyone is able to, be awesome in the heat if they prepare well
3: well i do tend to agree with the take um from this podcast we're speaking about in that sort of the best coach is not necessarily having a physiology background because i think that often we get too tied up thinking about as he says you know uh, various aspects within the body and not enough about these are the demands of an event it's going to be hot or it's going to be this long or after this many kilojoules of work, you're going to need to produce this sort of power profile. And we could talk about all these things, but it's like, if you don't ever do that in training and sort of validate that, do you think you can really be ready to do that in competition and sort of looking at things in a more kind of demands of the
1: event um, way or even more, basically, Joe Tobias Foss. I was kind of encouraged speaking to Tobias Foss about his world time trial championship victory when he said that he really just focused on velocity, speed, rather than watts. I mean, um, to take it down to its most practical level, that is what you guys are essentially doing. You're in a you're in a speed business, not a watts business, not a power business, aren't you? Exactly. Well, yeah. The
3: thing is. The beauty of one one nice thing of cycling is it's quite easy to mount a strain gauge on a bicycle and measure power, but it's like... And one of the things that was talked about in this podcast was velocity as, as, as opposed to kind of measuring always power. And there's so much put into power, but it's like, that's really just an output. And to me, something even like heart rate, I think is almost more valuable from a training perspective than power. But even... Like, and this is something Larry and I have talked about, and it's interesting. You mentioned Tobias Foss talks about this in terms of velocity, and it's it's sort of similar in that, like, how you do intervals to get the power. Because, for example, if, if you do the intervals uh, standing versus seated, it's like, well, yeah, it's easier to do the power when you're standing, but it's not necessarily faster. And in the race, that might, might cost you something. And, and even if you think about, like, in his case, you know, the... With a TT bike, it's like some guys spend a lot of time on their TT bike. Some guys don't ever ride it. Some guys, a lot of us don't even have one at home. And it's like, it's almost a different sport.
0: Mm.
3: I mean, if you never mm. ride the TT bike and I think it's, it can be difficult to go fast in TTs because it is just different and there's, a, you know, power is one thing, but also being able to do it, um, in that kind of position and yet being more velocity focused, Um, And generally being more kind of demand focused is probably a good way to go about thinking of this stuff.
1: Well, yeah, for sure. Chaps, one of the demands I set for myself this year was to make, as Larry knows, to make the podcast episodes a bit shorter. And I've defaulted (laughs) on that yet again and failed yet again. At this point, chaps, I think we should call it a night. And Joe, You've got to get back to, I don't know, embracing your boredom as previously discussed up there on the Teide. I could learn Russian many, while I'm here. It's, it's, well, hey, yeah. We have
3: only Russian speaking, well, the, some of them also speak English um, and Italian, but it's me and three Kazakh writers
1: well there's something to do and Larry you've been well you've been busy on holiday with you've had a couple of days off with your family members well, I think, not right? holiday
3: but not yeah. by, yeah, they're slightly. on holiday
1: I'm not on holiday okay <laughs> okay slightly lighter training load over the last couple of days but anyway you've you've earned a rest as well is what I'm trying to say um, it's about dinner time here in Berlin chaps I'm going to say um, thank you for a fascinating conversation as always and wish you all the best in the first races of the season we'll check in and um, certainly with you Larry and you as well Joe probably in in a couple of months time see how you're getting on um see whether everything you hoped and dreamed of from 2023 is turning into reality thank you larry and thank you joe thanks guys thank you daniel thanks everyone
4: the cycling podcast was created in 2013 by richard moore daniel Freib, and lionel Byrne.